applause for the dads and granddads today. I'm, ask, I'm asking a good bit of you today. I'm going to ask you to put your thinking caps on as we go through this teaching on, uh, on this idea of true happiness. Um, we're going through the Psalms. And what I have suggested to you is that the Psalms, which are ancient, have relevance for modern situations. And so today I'd like us to read Psalm 8. Would you read it with me? I like it when you read out loud with me. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth. Now, what I am wanting you to take up with me and what I am pushing and forcing on you is a quest for the summer. It's a goal. And that goal is that you would experience and maintain in the midst of realities of life a relentless joy. Now, I'd like you to read that with me. To experience and maintain in the midst of the realities of life a relentless joy. Okay. Now, the second part I'd like you to read too. To forsake the superficial pleasures of this world for the fundamental happiness provided the work of God in our lives. What I would like more than anything else is that every single person that you come in contact with would say to you, you have a fundamental happiness that I want. But in order for that to happen, you have to understand how that happens. And I think the Psalms is one of the best places to look for that. So what we're looking at in Psalm 8 is my conviction or belief that you will not have true happiness unless you understand your identity. And that identity is rooted and grounded and anchored in what God has to say about you. And then from that true identity that God has given you, you begin to allow a value or an esteem for yourself to arise as a byproduct of the truth. Now, I've been thinking about this a good bit, getting ready for the series, and one of the things that I feel like I've seen more clearly than I've ever seen before is, in a sense, what identity actually is and why it's so important. For example, um, what 
when someone says to you, what do you do for a living, they're not really asking your identity. Even if you tell someone your name, you're not necessarily telling them who you are. You're just telling them how you're called. Identity is, is, this, is, is this deep core thing in your inner being. And, and, and what you have inside of you without even trying, and you cannot take it away, but you have a need for what we call coherent or consistent sense of self or who you are. And in other words, you can only have a true identity if there is a sameness between what you present to the world and what you have inside. You can only have an identity that you can value if when you look inside of yourself and what you see, you actually think has some worth to it. For example, if you value truth, but you lie, if you say, I, I, I hate lying and I hate liars and I hate people that don't tell the truth, but you find you're a liar and you lie, then you will hate yourself. Even if you try to hide that you lie. Or if you have a tremendous value of loyalty and faithfulness, but you cheat on your wife, then you cannot have self-esteem that has any reality to it because you are not having a consistency of yourself. You're having inconsistency of self. I mean, if your value is to be a cheater and a liar, and your value is to be a hater, and your value is that, then maybe you could find some value in that. But those, aren't, those are not attributes that will ever be valued by anyone. So in a sense, what, we're saying, what I'm saying to you is that if you long for and are willing to have a true joy in your life, then you have to have a true identity. And that identity has to be something you esteem Something that you think has worth. And so, this idea in the psalm, particularly in Psalm 8, is he's anchoring your true self, the consistency of yourself, the sameness of self, he's anchoring it to the Word of God. But there are forces that are coming against all of us that are trying to bind or connect our identity to things that will actually destroy worth, and destroy value. And I think there are three forces that I want you to be aware of. Now, the, these, are, these are happening all around us at all times, and, and maybe trying to give them to you in about 30 minutes or so is, is, is a little simplistic, but I think it will be helpful if you look and you begin to realize these things are bombarding you every day. If you watch TV, this first one, comes at you in every commercial. And it's basically this. Your identity is defined by what you acquire or what you accomplish. There are, there are many suggestions constantly that you will only be important if you can make yourself into whatever you need in order to get whatever you, uh, you think will make you important, satisfied, or fulfilled. Now, what I mean by that in some ways, is all you have to do is listen to a car commercial. 
you're nothing without a Lexus. You know, and if you have an older Lexus, you need a newer Lexus. And I have at times thought it would be fun to have a car that parked itself. I always thought that would be really enjoyable to do that. Okay. Or another one that, that is so clarifying, if you watch it closely, the Mercedes commercial. The best or nothing. Sorry, Ford. Sorry, Chevy. The best or nothing. See, the idea is you're nothing if you don't have the best. Okay, now you could probably fin that off, but yet there's something in it that starts to connect. And we begin to say, but what have I accomplished? What do I have? How do I show that I have worth and value? And so many of us get trapped into thinking if I, you know, if I have the right clothes, if I have the right purse, if I have the right you know, job, if I have the right house, that any of these things will then determine my worth, my value. The problem is that all of that is external. Not only is it external, it's not coherent. Um, if you look at the little points that I have there, see, if you decide that, that something else is going to give you your, you your identity other than God, you will not have ever a coherent sense of who you are. Instead of an inner core of sameness with values and goals that never change, you'll actually end up selling your soul to get whatever it is you believe you need or want. And this comes in the form of your, of your relationships. It comes in form of your work. It comes in form of all kinds of things. And what, what happens is, and this is, this is blunt, and I'm going to be very blunt, and I wouldn't say this to someone's face unless I knew them well, but I'm going to do it with you because I don't think you can hurt me right now. See, if you live like this, then all the rest of us are nothing more than cars and trucks and clothes to you. We're just one more thing to make your life. You're actually a predator. You just use us. Because the only real thing that matters is how we make you feel. How we make you important. See, there is no way to live and be loving and believe that your worth, your value is based on what you can acquire, what you can accomplish. And then if anybody gets in your way, then they're the object of your wrath. They're the object of your scorn. They're the object of your hate. You can't live this way. It's a force that's coming after us. It's all around us. But the, and uh, one of the writers that I, I was reading said, this the first one is pretty much the philosophy of the 80s. Now, fortunately, some of you were born in the 80s. The rest of us had to live through the 80s. Uh, and everything was about what you could acquire, what you could get. And, and you know what? It didn't last. It didn't last on the surface. But because everybody began to realize greed and all this ambition was just evil. And yet still, it, it, it still it, it's pervasive in our society. Now, the second one is a pseudo-spirituality that has arisen. And it's the idea that I am what I feel. Now, you, you got to, I love feelings, friends. Lisa says I've never met a feeling I don't like. 
Okay, I love feelings, but here's the thing. My life, apart from Christ, is so broken. And my feelings are so inconsistent and so contradictory that I had to learn and understand my feelings. Feelings are from God a diagnostic tool regarding what you believe. Feelings are actually very accurate in telling you where you are believing truth and where you're believing untruth. Because if you believe the truth, your feelings will follow along with that reality. If you are believing something is false, you, your feelings will take you into unreality. Now, here's the thought that's coming at all of us. Is that somewhere deep inside of you, underneath all the contradictory lusts and desires and longings, underneath there is this bedrock that's the real you. Here's the problem, friends. You get down to the bedrock, it is as contradictory as everything else is. Because you live this life, even as a Christian, you are living this life in a war inside yourself between the flesh and the spirit. Your spirit wants the things of God. Your flesh wants what it wants. You get you you know you clear away the superficial contradictions, and you will find fundamental contradictions. You and I, we, we want contradictory things. For example, you know I want to weigh 175 pounds. I want to eat a ton of ice cream. I want both of them. Come on. I mean, I want to eat three meals a day and three more. I went on a cruise ship. I wanted everything. I, was, I, I didn't want to sleep. I just wanted to eat. And I didn't, want to lose, I didn't want to gain any weight. Whatever weight I had lost before, I found at sea. You understand? Those are not, they're both real. They're both me. So I strip away everything. I find I'm just as contradictory at the bottom as I am at the top. Come on. You begin to realize. So what, what happens here, what happens here is that we have a society that now applauds you manifesting what, you're, what people are saying. These are my deep-rooted, true feelings. I, I mean, an example, I, again, I'm not here, I'm not about judging. I'm just looking at things. And I've got to say that, that Bruce Jenner's transformation, Caitlyn Jenner, is an example of this. If you listen to his language, he is saying, I have found my true feelings. All right? And I believe that we live in a broken world, and it's a place for compassion and understanding and all of this, but I would like honesty. Because I think... In a year or two, he's going to find out he's just as broken as a woman as he was as a man. That he's going to have the same unhappiness because I don't think there is a bedrock down there. I think there is a, a huge storm inside of us. And I would love it if when we find that this doesn't work either, that we're as honest as we were when we thought it would work. But that's not the way it goes. Now, second thing about this is if the 
the, the philosophy that's being put upon each of you, that you've got to find your true feelings and all of this stuff, if it's true, why does everyone need to go on television to tell about it? Well, why? Because they need affirmation. Because there is within you not the ability to self-validate. There is within you the desire to have validation. God made you that way. Now, let me explain why I know that. Because Jesus himself, when he went under obedience of baptism, it says he has submitted himself to John. He went into the water with John. The Spirit of God descended on him like a dove, and he was baptized in the Holy Spirit. But what happened in that moment that was so human and divine at the same time is the Father spoke from heaven and said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Validation. You know what? The son, if the Son of Man needed validation, so do you. And so even when we, when we hear these lines, like there's a, there's a commercial, really handsome guy. I think it's a, I, some of these commercials, I don't really know what they're selling. Maybe handsomeness. I don't know what it was at all. But he gets up there in front of all these microphones and says, I'm not going to be who you expect me to be anymore. And he walks out and stuff like that. I'm like, I didn't expect anything from you at all, you know. But the, the idea is this defiant, I'm going to fly in the face of the current of opinion. But then we're always looking to say, but are they with me? Are they for me? Why is that? Because I need something outside of myself to validate that my emotions are actually true. We were made that way. And you're not going to get it from an ever-changing, inconsistent, incoherent world. It's very hard for me to believe people as screwed up as I am can tell me I'm okay. And then take it as valid. When there's a voice, friends, that speaks from heaven and says, because you are in my son, with whom I am well pleased, I am well pleased with you. I can hear his voice. And his objective is to validate me. And he doesn't need anything from me. See, everybody else that gives you praise and applause is trying to get something for themselves. Well, the third one, are you tracking with me on these? The third one is probably the most modern. That, that, that second one is probably 60s, 70s. That's, that's, you know, tune in, you know, all that stuff. So, so you know, it's coming back in some ways. And, and usually, though, you see baby boomers doing that one. This one is the, the most modern of the forces that come. And it's powerful. And it basically, if you boil it down, it's this. I am whatever I say I am. Now, the great theologian of this theory of identity, Miley Cyrus, has really, actually, she articulates it incredibly well. She says, my sexuality is fluid. I am whatever I want to be. 
I am with whoever I want to be with. And I will do whatever I want to do. I am whatever I say. And, and, and you can't get in my way and say I'm not. Nor can anyone else. No morality, no law, no government, no culture. Nothing can tell me what I am. I am what I say I am. See, it's an incredibly consistent view if you really believe there is no God. The other two views you could have God. God is optional. You know, you could say, I need a God to help me acquire. I need a God who will help me accomplish. You can even say, when I cleared away all the feelings, I found divinity. Of course, I am the God, but all that. You could have a God. This one says, there is no God. Everything is nothing more than a human construct. And so everything is fluid. Now, you know, the other two say, are saying, in a sense, your identity can be discovered. But if there is no God, identity cannot be discovered. You just have to create it. So identity, therefore, is not something you can tell me. It's something I tell you. And therefore, it's oppressive to say that I've got to be something. So the other two views can't even stand up against this one. You will see this one rise totally and destroy all the others. And what's going to happen is this randomness is immediately contradictory. So listen, listen to theologian Miley Cyrus for a minute. She said this, no one can tell me who I am or what I do. She said, it is oppressive for anyone to judge me. I judge no one. And then she goes, and my parents are very judgmental. And then she said this, I will have sex with anything and everything except animals and children. You ask the question, on what basis do you exclude animals and children? There must be a morality then. Okay? All right, now that's a contradiction. So she's having to borrow Christian terms in order to have some kind of morality. But take this a little further. Think about this. How can you say anybody is ever wrong? Her parents, they're judgmental. They're being themselves. You know, as a pastor, I'm a judgmental old fart. This is who I am. I'm being myself. Why are you mad at me? I'm doing, yeah, I, I think it's best to have one wife. You know, I think it, <laughs> Lisa said thanks. <laughs> I think it's best to be faithful to that one wife. She likes that one too. Okay? Why are you judging me? And, and why can't I judge anything I want since I can do whatever I want? It's consistent in one sense and totally contradictory in another. Because you can't live randomly. You with me? Here's the problem, though. If this one is not exposed, cruelty follows. You switch that, and instead of theologian Miley Cyrus, you get a very ugly, lecherous, poor man saying the same thing and everybody will be terrified. It can only come out of the mouth of the beautiful, the rich, and the popular. 
You understand what I'm saying? It's only, it's only, it's only, you know, whatever if you're beautiful. Because again, what is it? External. It has no real intrinsic value. It has no depth to it whatsoever. Well, why am I telling you all this? Well, I'm telling you this again because if you expose lies in your life and replace them with truth, you will be free. You will not change the way you feel by trying not to feel something. You will change the way you feel by acknowledging that you're believing something that's not true. You will never make something true that's not true by believing it. I've never seen an untruth become true because I believe it. I mean, I, I, I could tell you for the rest of my life I'm six foot four, two forty and play for the New York Giants. But it would not be true no matter how long I tell it. Even if I say, I want it to be true, I want it to be you know, it won't become true. But see, if the word of God said that I am fearfully and wonderfully made, if the word of God said he has made me just a little lower than the heavenly beings and he has crowned me with glory, and I begin to believe it, then the way I feel about myself and others will change. Healing will follow the truth. So that's why I believe that self-esteem, which I think is important, in other words, it's valuing who you are and what you have. Self-esteem is primarily a theological issue. In other words, the more you see and realize the glory and majesty of God, the more you will see the glory and majesty of yourself. See, if you have a great big God who has crowned you with glory because He said so, and then you begin to believe it, then you'll begin to experience that you're not the low person on the pecking order. You are, you are right where you're supposed to be. He's made you just a little lower than the heavenly beings. <laughs> and for you to say, I am nothing, is to lie about yourself. The bigger your God, the bigger you are. The bigger your God, the bigger capacity you have to love others. So I'm saying to you, if you take hold of this truth of who He says you are, and you say, this is who I am, it's not how much money I have or how important my job is. It's not even, you know, how many things I've accomplished. This is the one thing that matters. Who God says I am. The question becomes then, is he your creator or are you an accident? He's your creator. Then basically the psalmist is saying everything he does is a work of art. Guess what? You're a work of art and he's the painter. So then you can't live just as you wish. You begin to understand you've got to listen. You've got to know that you have worth and value. Well, the opposite of that, in some ways, if, if you don't see a creator and everything's just random and accident, then we're really nothing more than a random coming together of molecules, which means we're nothing more than junk. But you know why people say that? Is they want to live any way they can. They want to live any way they want to. But the problem is they also want to be valued as precious. And the only place you're going to be truly precious is in the eyes of the artist who painted you. 
He's the only one that's going to value you as a treasure. In verse 5, it says he made man a little lower than divinity. Verse 6, he says he's given us dominion. Basically saying he's made us in his image. And here's how we're like God. We have a hunger to know and to learn. That's the rational aspect where we're just like our Father. We have a personal aspect. Just like he loves to love and be loved, you love to love and be loved. An eternity aspect. Have you ever noticed? I mean, you can be fooled into thinking life would be better if you ended it or your, your existence would be better if it was over. But there's something in every one of us that wants to last and we actually want to do things that will outlast us. That's, that God, God has put eternity into your life. Creative aspect. We have a hunger for beauty. Um, here's, here's, here's this way I want to end this. I, I want you to get this so much. You see, verse 4 says, not only has God crowned us with glory, but it says he's mindful of us. Do you, do you know that inside of you, without, without even trying, you have a deep desire that somebody would love you in such a way that you would dominate their thoughts. Now, Lisa and I have been married for 35 years, and we have developed a, a, such a closeness and a trust. And my wife is one of the strongest women I've ever known. But I love the tenderness and the softness and the, the willingness that she has to make herself vulnerable. So one of, my, one of my favorite things that she does is at night, I kiss her goodnight, and she rolls over to me and she goes, are you going to miss me? And I always go, I'm right next to you. I'm not going to miss you. And, uh, and, and, and I said, and besides, you're going to steal the covers. You're going to kick me out of the bed. I will know that you're here all night. And then I get up in the morning and she goes, did you miss me? <laughs> See, I understand that what it's our fun game that we play together, but I, I know what she's saying. She's saying, do you love me enough that I dominate the way you think? Here's what, here's what the psalmist says. God loves you so much that you, not, not just everybody else, you dominate the way he thinks he is consumed with thinking of you in other words i mean as much as i know it matters to lisa that i absence makes the heart grow fonder and all of that stuff as important as that it, that is that will never satisfy her unless first and foremost the mind that matters is dominated by her you see, there's only one mind that really matters. I mean, every one of us in here, even right now, some of you, your mind has already gone to where am I going to eat lunch? Okay? But others of you, you've got seven, eight things going on at the same time all the time. But God's mind is single-minded towards you. It's single-minded. He's consumed with you. And if that doesn't you know, this like jolt you into saying, how can I think so lowly of myself if the mind that matters thinks so highly of me? And you might say to me, and it would be a good thing, it says, you know, but 
I don't feel crowned with glory. I don't feel like things are under my feet. Sometimes it feels like everything's on top of us. But Hebrews 2.8 says this, that already Jesus has been crowned with glory. And if you are in Christ, then the glory of Christ is in you. If you are in Christ, then you can say this with me, because I am in Christ, I am loved as if I were Christ. That the Father in heaven turned his face from Jesus so he could always be consumed with you. That's where I get my worth from. Now, now, just one more thing. If he really is the artist who painted, then he gets to tell you how to live your life. Because you'll never have true self-esteem or a coherent identity until your obedience is synced with his will. And sometimes our feelings don't go with obedience. So in our heart of hearts, we begin to look and say, you know what? I am a child of God. I am a man of faith. I am a woman of faith. This is who I am. I see a consistency. I see a sameness. And as a matter of fact, I believe unless you are the same privately and publicly, you have a false identity. Are you tracking with me on that? I mean, for me, when I, when I see this, I go, he is mindful of me. In other words, his mind is full of me. I go, why do I always put myself there? Why do I live as if I'm a pauper? Why do I live as if I'm not good enough when he's already declared me good enough? I'm going to listen to him. I'm not listening to the other stuff. He will be the force that defines my life, not these other forces. Does that make sense to you? I know I'm going to run into time constraints, but I have had this sense that some of you need to lift out of your chairs. You need to come up here and you need to just take my hand and you need to say, I'm going to give myself to the one who is mindful of me. Would you do that now? Would you stand together? If you want to come and join me up here, I want to just pray a prayer over us today. You just sense, I want my self-esteem to, to be anchored to the right thing. I want my confidence to be anchored in the right thing. I want a, an identity that's consistent with what I value. I want sameness. I want the inside to be the same as the outside and the outside, the same as the inside, I want this unshakable true identity to come forth. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. And will you just take hands with people next to you? Don't mind doing that? And I'll take a hand here. I would hold all your hands, but I only have two. I think you're hearing me. It's not about what you acquire. It's not even about what you feel. Feelings have deceived often. It's definitely not about who you say you are. It's who Jesus says you are. And the God who lived up to the hardest promise of all will live up to all the other promises. The hardest promise was the promise of His Son. He will live up to all the other promises. You... Paul learned that. He said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He said, you know, we're pressed down but not destroyed. Persecuted but not abandoned. When you go to sleep, you can say to God, will you miss me? And he'll say yes. (laughs) Because he never has you out of his mind. He is mindful. Will you say this with me? Lord Jesus, 
You are mindful of me. Your mind is full of me. I receive this identity as a child of God, as a beloved of the Father. I renounce and reject every other way that I've tried to prove myself to have worth, to have value. I give myself to the one who's given himself to me. Because I am in Christ, I am loved as Christ. Now, I, I see, I'm just going to take a minute more, I see insecurities fighting you. Would you, it may not be all of you, but would you say it together with me? I reject these insecurities. Jesus is perfect. I am in him. His perfection is in me. I will live in him. There was a, there was a point where I kept failing. And I felt so guilty and ashamed and so unworthy. And Satan was coming hard at me. And he was pointing out all my flaws, all my faults. And I heard the Lord say, show him my record. And I said in a loud voice, I said, Satan, you have defeated me time and time again. But you have never, ever defeated my faithfulness. And I said, I, I have failed many tests, but he has never failed any test. So I showed him the record of Jesus. So this day, for you, I show Satan, the accuser, fear, the accuser. I show them the record of Jesus over your life. There's an A-plus over you. Every test, every test, every test, Jesus has overcome. And I bless you with that now in the name of Jesus I bind the spirit of fear and insecurity. That, that spirit of unworthiness, the spirit of the pauper, I, uh, the poverty spirit, I bind you together. I send it to the feet of Jesus. You have no right over our people here. Particularly at this altar, we declare victory in Jesus and in his name. Amen. Amen. Would you share that love with one another?